Wale Salam, welcome to the show. Thank Camilia. I'm very honored to be on your show. I'm、This、a big is... fan of yours. <laughs> Thank you. This is my first English podcast. So honored to invite you as my guest. When I first arrived in London, you you are my Airbnb host, and we just get along so well, and I learn a lot of stories from you. It was incredible how we clicked well together, and、um, I think we shared a lot of things.、Uh, that's why we became friends. I think we have a lot in common.、Uh, you traveled the world, and you moved from、uh, China to New Zealand, and I myself moved to different countries. So、um, I think、uh, that kind of Cultural experience made us、um, see the world from a diff- from a particular perspective. Yeah, from multiple perspectives. Yeah, 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 and I think that kind of connects us really.、Mm. Just to start with, introduce yourself. Yes, I've been living in London for sixteen years. I'm Egyptian, born and raised, born in Cairo. Got my education in Cairo. I did my、uh, I studied economics. At the American University in Cairo, and then did my first master's degree in development studies. I worked in development,、mm-hmm. in development consulting. So I was working for private sector development in Egypt, looking at how to improve private sector in Egypt, enable the business environment in Egypt to become more business friendly. Then after working in consulting, I decided to go to Canada. I moved to Toronto. I was lucky at the time in the late nineties. That the immigration policy of Canada was very easy. <laughs> I had a very interesting experience. The first time ever I set my foot in Canada when I walked out of the airport. I had a very strange feeling that I'm not a stranger. Canada is such a multicultural society. Even when you're walking at the airport, waiting for the immigration officer to stamp your passport, I look at all the immigration officers. They are of all colors, yeah, of all ethnic backgrounds. There are people of Indian heritage. There are people of Arab heritage. There are people of Southeast Asian heritage, Chinese heritage. And you look at them and you say, "Oh, they are so diverse. They are so different, but they all work for the same institution." The successful Canadian experience of achieving a multicultural society is should be looked up to. I don't know about New Zealand. Do you feel the same way about New Zealand? Yeah, because New Zealand is considered as a migrant country, so you got immigrants from all over the world. As New Zealanders, they call themselves Kiwis, so they're all very friendly. In Canada, for example, people always ask you when you're in Canada, "Where are you from?"、Mm-hmm. I I would always say I'm Egyptian. It never bothered me to be asked this question, and the reason why it didn't bother me is because. In Canada, it is written in the papers that you get when you get your permanent residency. It says it's a place that embraces cultural diversity, and Canada as a country does not expect you to forget your heritage, does not expect you to erase your heritage. In fact, it is when everybody holds to their heritage. And bring their heritage and share their heritage and traditions and cultures with the rest of the Canadian society is that the Canadian society becomes more rich. So the the richness of society comes from the diversity of the heritage, cultural heritage that all Canadians share. This is the seed. The multicultural society model works in Canada. The people are not afraid of being called Egyptian. While they are Canadian, or being asked whether what is their heritage, because they don't think that they will be treated as second-class citizens if they are asked. Whenever you get into a cab or go to a restaurant, and the waiter asks you or the cab driver asks you, 
I, I don't feel intimidated, neither do I feel belittled that, oh, he thinks I'm a, a foreigner, so he asks me why <laughs> does he think that I'm less Canadian than any other Canadian, like a white Canadian. That, that issue doesn't cross my mind when I'm in Canada. Even though London is home now, I have a British citizenship, so I'm British Canadian Egyptian, <laughs> yet I also feel a sense of belonging to Canada. But I had an interesting experience when I was in New York once. Yes. I was having dinner at a friend's house and there were a group of 10 people, the diverse crowd, I would say educated, uh, well-exposed, well-traveled. We were having a conversation and one of the people sitting there uh, at the dinner table spoke with, an, with, a, with a Spanish accent. I asked that lady very spontaneously, like we do in Canada, where are you from? And she said, I'm from the Upper East Side. <laughs> and the Upper East Side is a, is a neighborhood in New York. Very innocently, I said, well, I didn't mean where you live. I mean, where you're from. Uh, because if you, if you ask me where you're from, I'm not going to tell you I'm from Kensington <laughs> because I was not born in Kensington. <laughs> I would tell you I'm from Cairo, but I've been living in London for 16 years. I told her that. I said, like, I didn't mean where you live. I meant where you come from. The host said something which I found a bit offensive. He said, like, uh, we don't ask such questions in New York. Do you think that every American should be white? We don't ask these questions. And I said, like, well, I'm sorry uh, if I've offended anyone. I didn't mean to. Those are questions that we ask in England and we ask in Canada. And nobody takes offense because if you ask me, like, wherever I go in Canada, people ask me where are you from because they know that I have moved to Canada. I'm no less Canadian than any white Canadian. So being asked the question where I'm from is because people are curious, what's my heritage? And that also opens up conversations because they want to know where I'm from, what's my story, where was I born, what brought me here? You know, there is a story to be told. So I don't take offense when people ask me that question. But apparently in New York, they feel that when they are asked this question, that they are less American than any other American who was like, you know, born in America with an, with an English native tongue. When people ask, where are you originally from? Sometimes I feel like, I think I'm not New Zealand enough to yeah. you or not yeah. English enough to yeah. you. Probably people with open mind, they, they won't mind share. Oh, okay, I'm like yeah. you. Yeah. Like, I won't mind share my Egyptian heritage. Yeah. I think it's a tango. In a way, if I take offense in somebody asking me, where I'm from, I'm contributing to the narrative. If I am British or Canadian of Egyptian origin or any other origin, then I am less Canadian or less British than the British who were born in Britain. So the fact that I would take offense would contribute to that narrative. But if I say, well, I'm actually British of Egyptian heritage, and I am a proud British of Egyptian heritage, or I'm a proud Canadian of Egyptian heritage, that of itself would kill the kind of narrative that asking this question implies a second-class status. That being said, this on its own is not enough. Like, you know, perhaps it works in Canada because also the system itself, the institutions themselves, the government itself, enables this to happen. And perhaps in America, the, the system does not enable this to happen. Shall we talk about the current, the Black Lives Matter? I see this 
become the global movement now. Even in London, we see so many protests like gather together to support yeah. the movement. Yeah. But you mentioned you read the news about the prime minister's comment on that. Boris Johnson said that the Black Lives Matter protests were infiltrated by thuggery, that there were thugs in the protests. Well, I mean, it's a similar comment to Trump saying that <laughs> there are looters in the riots and in the demonstrations. Maybe there are looters in any demonstration, mm-hmm. not only Black Lives Matter now in the States or in the UK. Yeah. They do exist. It happens. The interesting question to ask is, why do these young people, when demonstrations happen, why some of these people in the demonstrations loot? Why do they loot? What drives them to loot? If you follow that trail of thinking and the question that we just asked, you'd realize that people loot because they are uh, dispossessed. Because these young people have dreams, have aspirations, they want to improve their lives, and they feel they are dispossessed. They are dispossessed of their dreams. They are dispossessed of their ability to achieve those dreams. They want to buy the simplest things, but they can't because of the economic situation, Uh, because of the incredible income uh, disparities that exist in societies now. They are desperate, and their desperation pushes them. So when somebody throws a piece of stone on a glass window of a shop, and then people jump in there, and they see all these things that they dream of having, but they can't because they are dispossessed, because they don't have, because they are in need, then, then they go and, and get it. The, the, their thinking is, well, I am a citizen, I have rights, I have dignity, but the system is not respecting my rights, economic rights. My system is not respecting my civil rights. Why should I care and care about the system if the, if the system doesn't care about me? It's a dual process. I mean, people wouldn't care about their surroundings unless they feel that their surroundings cares about them. Yeah. They wouldn't nurture their their communities unless they feel that their communities are nurturing them. Mm-hmm. It's like a two-way conversation. Yes, of course. Yeah. And for the time being, the narrative is these people are crushed and the system is crushing them. What happened to George Floyd does not only symbolize racial discrimination. It's, it was also a representation of state brutality. The brutality of the system against the people. It is the system, the state, against the citizens. Yeah. And in this case, it was a black citizen. Mm-hmm. But state brutality is everywhere. You see state brutality in China, you see state brutality in Egypt, you see state brutality in, uh, in uh, different parts of the Arab world. Even in Europe, there is state brutality. People feel like we're crushed by the system. We are hungry, we're desperate, we're dispossessed. We have dreams and aspirations, but the system does not allow us to and to achieve those dreams, achieve those aspirations. That economic system in place, creating this incredible racial uh, tensions and creating these terrible income disparities uh, should be fixed. Because people need a something to release their anger towards the system. I mean, the COVID, because, you know, a lot of people lost their jobs and people stay home for a couple of months. They, when they say something happened, they need this as an excuse to release all their angers towards the government. 
Yeah, well, you can say that definitely it has to do with this. Mm -hmm. It definitely accentuates. But I mean, when you come to think about it, it's very interesting because everything is linked. Mm -hmm. So when you come to think about it, 2008, there was a global economic meltdown. We still live in the repercussions of the global meltdown in 2008. The global meltdown of 2008 was an outcome of an economic system that allowed total financial liberalization, total financialization of the economy, 1% of society amasses all the fortune while the rest is, is hungry and is in need. And the institutions that were behind the economic meltdown were, were actually were fine. They did not suffer. In fact, these banks were bailed out using taxpayers' money and the government saved them. The taxpayers paid for that and these taxpayers are suffering now. We're in 2020, 12 years since the meltdown, the, the, this, this crisis, and we're still suffering from it. Since then, nothing has changed. The economic system has not changed. People are still suffering from the repercussions of the global financial crisis of 2008. But then what's interesting in England, for example, instead of looking at what really needs to be fixed in the economy, I mean, you bailed the banks, you bailed out the banks, and the CEOs of all those banks continue to get incredible bonuses and live a very good life. But then the poor are still poor and even more miserable. So, but then what happened is a narrative developed out of the financial crisis. And that narrative was, oh, we don't want to be in Europe. Europe has caused us trouble. Europe has resulted in dire economic situation in Britain. We don't want foreigners. We don't want immigrants. You blame them. They become the scapegoat. And instead of looking inside and see why the system is not functioning, how can we fix it? And how can we enable young people to find jobs? And how can we create a system that cares for everybody? Dysfunctional economic system that only benefits the, the, the privileged and forgets about the many. You have people feeling that, no, we are actually not only protesting against racial discrimination. We're protesting against the system, the system that does, not that does not respect our economic rights and our civil rights, the system that crushes us, the system that makes us live on the fringes. I know it's a very complicated problem, but a, can we do anything as a ordinary people? It's so hard to just fight against the system because you can't just uh, take over the system overnight. No. It's a graduate progress. Yes. So what can we do as an individual? So you see, I come from Egypt. Egypt was under Mubarak for many years, 30 years. In the late 90s, Egypt was experiencing, started uh, implementing economic reforms. At the, the late 90s, beginning of 2000, we had high rates of economic growth. If we achieve economic growth, then this growth is going to trickle down by some sort of a miracle and then people will have better lives. That actually is a myth that does not work. You had privileged few benefiting from the growth and a lot of people didn't. So eventually 
around 2007-2008 with the global financial crisis, the rising prices of food globally, and Egypt imports a lot of its uh, food, people could not feed themselves. People could not, people were hungry. People were killing themselves. There were actually people fighting with knives, standing up in line to buy bread. Obviously, um, when you reach that level of disparity, sustaining the status quo is not possible. So people demonstrate against the system, asking for a change. So people demonstrated in Egypt in 2010. Was this Arabic Spring? Yes, that was that happened after Tunisia. So Arab Spring started in Tunisia and then we were inspired by the demonstrations in Tunisia. So Egyptians took to the streets and demonstrated against the Mubarak regime, mm-hmm. against the political system. You were part of it. I was lucky to have returned to Egypt four or five days before the demonstrations start. And then my friends called me and said, like, there are demonstrations on the 26th. Are you coming down? And of course, yes. I said, of course, uh, I will come down. So I went down on the 26th of January. These were the very first days of the demonstrations. And at the time, it was really a very small little number of people demonstrating. But then on the 28th uh, was the biggest day of demonstration against the Mubarak regime. And then obviously that gained momentum. And then which led eventually after two weeks of demonstrations that uh, picked up a huge momentum that led to the resignation of uh, President Mubarak after 30 years of presidency. When people demonstrated in Egypt, they felt like the black people in America are feeling, like the people who are demonstrating in Britain now are feeling, the young people of Egypt were feeling desperate, were feeling hopeless, were feeling they are crushed by the system and uh, they needed change. So they took to the streets and they were protesting. Looting happened. It's the same scenario where the state, once the protests start, which is, I think, a peaceful protest, it was a peaceful protest. I mean, when I was watching the video in America, I thought like those are images that are coming from like developing country. (laughs) I couldn't believe that this is happening in America. I couldn't believe that what's happening, like America, with its its institutions and its constitution allows this to happen. To go back to your question, what should we do? There should be civil organizations, civil society and, and, and grassroots organizations that galvanize, use this momentum to use the youth, the voices of this youth to ask for those for those changes that are needed, that are imperative. Peaceful demonstration is a right, Mm -hmm. should be protected and granted. People should um, continue to always uh, peacefully protest whenever there is something that they need to speak against. But also I believe that people should change that anger into an energy and direct that energy for change. Those young black Americans that feel dispossessed, that feel crushed, they should continue to be active. They should not just let their energy fade away once the demonstrations are over. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the continuation of the demonstration is going to bring about uh, immediate action, like, for example, uh, trialing the uh, police people Mm -hmm. that killed George Floyd. There should be laws and regulations 
to stop institutional racism and should be checks and balances within institutions everywhere to make sure that institutional racism does not exist. So continuation of peaceful demonstration is going to ensure that this process of legislative change is going to happen and should start now. Other changes that need to, to, to happen, like, you know, what kind of economic structures we need in place? Mm -hmm. How should the economic system that we have in the country cater for everybody? What kind of ownership structures within the economy should be in place so that it benefits all people? It doesn't, doesn't only benefit the privileged, mm -hmm. but it doesn't everybody. How, and, and how this ownership structures would enable these dispossessed and the young to achieve their dreams and feel that they are part of the system and not marginalized by the system. Mm. We do need to create a hope and vision for next generation. So when I was applying for MBA at London Business School, yes. um, in my London Business School application, there was a question. If you would choose a historical event uh, to be part of, what would it be? I chose the student uprising in France in the 60s. I wanted to be part of the student uprising in France because it was the young people who were standing up asking for their rights so that the economic system in France would cater for them and would cater for the many rather than the few. I was basically voicing my desire for the students and the young people to stand up and ask for the rights in the part of the world where I come from. Forward five, six years later, a revolution happens in mm -hmm. Egypt. I think my desire was granted because mm -hmm. I was part of the demonstrations. Yeah. So instead of being part of the student uprising in France in the 60s, <laughs> I became part of the revolution in wow. Egypt in the 2010. Changing the economic system uh, and finding an alternative economic system mm -hmm. is not something that happens overnight. Mm -hmm. It's not something that happens over a week or a year. It's a process that's going to take decades, but it's a process that has to start and it has to start. It has to start now. Mm -hmm. We should have a long term perspective. We should have a long term vision. Where do we want to go? Where do we want to see ourselves? What is the system that we want to have in place? What kind of institutions and economic structures and ownership structures do we need to have in place that would enable us to deal with and address those grand social challenges? As a writer, I use internet yeah. to express my opinions and thoughts. Yeah. If I say something I think is not right, I need to speak up, then right. inspire my readers to think about these questions, then think about the solutions. Mm. I think my generation, I can't represent all of them. My friends, we talk about the economy, politics quite often. When people talk about take the Black Lives Matters yeah. on Chinese social media site, for example, so people think there's nothing to do with them. It's a black people. It's um, none of my business. Right. But I, I don't think so. We're all human beings. Right. We're all connected together. Yeah. Not one issue is separate from the world. Yeah. If we don't speak up for them, maybe tomorrow is the Asian people 
got killed like yeah. unfairly. Yeah. So who speak for us? Exactly. So I don't think that all the colors or nationalities or anything matters. Totally. But uh, yeah, like you said before, humanity matters most. Yeah. To me, you're a, a role model that I look up to <laughs> because you're so you're so talented. <laughs> And you write novels, and uh, you're a blogger, and you have a podcast, and you have a website. And to me, and I'm not saying this because you're my friend, but I mean it's 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 really a lovely example to look to. You're a blogger, and you use social media, but you really use social media, and you use technology tools mm -hmm. for a good purpose. You use your podcast to talk about important issues. You wrote a novel that uh, talks about your experience as multicultural. Uh, experience living in different countries and being a Chinese moving to New Zealand and coming to Britain and how does this affect your character and so on and you're aware of the global issues around you and you actually use your energies and direct them to address those issues use those social media platforms and tools technology tools in order to uh, speak up, let your voice uh, be heard and let many others in China and in other parts of the world to talk about it and, and be aware of it. When George Floyd got killed, so many people share the black picture on their social media side. Then that's it. They thought, oh, I did something. To me, I'm not criticized there action yeah. i think it's a good cause they aware of these unfair things yeah but uh, you just share the picture that's not enough we don't have a leader to direct people's energy to make some action yeah. i think for my generation we do, we don't have like a strong leader to lead us to make the positive change. We want to do good, but we don't have the direction. If I can have a long vision, I have a plans to lead people to do something, not just everyone just do their individual things, that won't make change happen. We need to gather all our energy together. You said something very interesting, actually. Mm -hmm. People share empty black picture on their Instagram, and they believe they've done their bit. Like, you know, by sharing that black picture, they are showing their solidarity to the movement of Black Lives Matter. But is this really social contribution? I post something to say this. Then some of my friends said, oh, you shouldn't criticize us. We just contribute in a different way. I said, okay. I'm yeah. not criticized about you. I just, I'm uh, just questioning. Yeah, I'm just questioning. Is that enough? Yeah. Do you just only want to feel good or you do want to make change? Yeah. If you do want to make change, you just need to do something, not just on your phone, then send a picture, that's it. This is a very, very, very important question. So I had a fantastic boss. His name is Bill Fisher. Um, he's an American. God bless his soul. He passed away almost 10 years ago. I still remember him with a lot of respect and, and, uh, and gratitude. But I had a very interesting conversation with him when the World Trade Center explosion happened. At the time, we were having conversation and I said, well, of course, what happened in the, on the World Trade Center and this explosion and so on is, is really terrible. Violence is something that not acceptable against civilians. Violence of any sort against civilians is, is not something that I would contribute to or accept. The interesting question is, at the time, I was having this conversation with him. Why did this group of people, this militant group, carried out this terrible terrorist act in America? Well, it had to do with American foreign policy and American politics and so on and so forth. 
Anyway, this is not why I want to discuss this story. But then at the time, Bill told me something. Why do you hate America? You studied in an American, the American University in Cairo. You criticize American uh, politics. So why do you hate America? And I said like, well, in fact, I don't hate America. I find it uh, very offensive. You actually see that civil conversation that I'm having with you as speech of hate against America. I don't hate America. I don't hate Americans. Being critical of American foreign policy does not equal hating America. And being critical of American foreign policy does not equal hating American people. Mm -hmm. That kind of narrative now is being used where everybody becomes critical of a system He's being accused of being a hater or being uh, an anarchist. Being critical, expressing your critique in a civil manner is your right Mm -hmm. as a citizen of any country, Mm -hmm. anywhere, Africa, Middle East, America, Europe. To protect those civil liberties and rights is also your right. Peaceful protesting is also your right. It goes back to our shared humanity. So me being an Egyptian British Canadian, being critical of an American economic system, crushing the young and dispossessing them of their dreams, then some American friends would tell me, why are you being so critical of of our system? I said, I don't think that being critical of a system is only allowed for the people of that country. Mm -hmm. Like, so only Americans are allowed to criticize their own system, but foreigners aren't. Because... Now, in this time and place we live in, we are all global citizens. Exactly. Yeah, what happens in the far corners of America causes riots in, in England. Black Lives Matter protests in, in Washington brings about protests in Berlin. So, you know, we live in a global world and we have become global citizens. Yeah. So me as a British citizen or a Canadian citizen, Egyptian citizen, I am impacted by what I see in America. So I have a right as a global citizen to raise my voice mm-hmm. and criticize that and, and, and peacefully stand up for it. Mm-hmm. I always think of the idea of circles of impact. If each one of us creates around him a circle of impact, I'm going to impact my locality, my community. I'm going to be the voice to enable, to contribute to awareness in my locality. If I live in a a small community in whatever, in Egypt or in China or in Portugal or wherever, I am aware of those issues. Through my community, as a socially responsible citizen, I should bring that awareness to them. Mm -hmm. Maybe they are not aware because they don't have the privilege that I have, unfortunately. And I say unfortunately because I think that Exposure and education and access to information and technology should be the right to everybody. Unfortunately, in a lot of poor countries, that's not the case. So if you have those means of education, of exposure, of access to information, of access to media and technology and so on, then you should definitely use it to enable other people Mm -hmm. who are less fortunate than you. So you create your own circle of impact. Mm -hmm. If, If you change the thinking of 10 people around you, and I do, and in every locality uh, somebody does, then then we end up, these little changes 
create yeah, yeah. big rubble on the surface of mm. the of the of society. Because as an individual, you do have the power to change another individual. You, for example, through your blog, you have the power to change because you your blog is accessible by by hundreds, by thousands, by maybe millions. Your voice reaches all these people. If, if you can think that Martin Luther King, mm. uh, without the access to that kind of technology that we have now, has managed to. Uh, start the liberation and the civil rights movement when he did not have access to technology. So can you imagine when you have rationality, Mm. critical thinking, awareness, education, and technology, what kind of power do you have? Unfortunately, Trump has access to Twitter. (laughs) He knows how to use it, but he doesn't use it for the right purpose. He uses it to divide, not to bring people together. Yeah, I do feel like very optimistic about our future. If all of our like-minded mind to change our world to the better direction, yeah. together we can do a lot. Like you said, we got the all the tools our previous generation didn't, don't, have. didn't have. Think of all those icons that you look up to mm. that changed history and say these people did not have access to all the things that we have access to. Gandhi, Mandela, whether you're speaking about uh, people who are liberating their own countries from colonialism, whether you're speaking about people who are marching to for, the, for civil rights and the rights of black people in America, these people have left a mark on society and humanity at large, and they did not have access to the technology mm. we have access to. If we put our minds together, use our rationality and education and vision uh, for the future, then we can definitely change things. Definitely, yeah. yeah. It's a great discussion with you uh, Thank you so much. I'm very yeah. privileged uh, to be on your podcast. <laughs> yeah, first English I'm, episode. Yeah, and I'm very honored. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm very happy we had that discussion. Shall we end with um, an Instagram post that you did. Oh, yeah. Yes, I, I, I like that. Yeah. Thank you. I, I had that um, Instagram post mm-hmm. when I read the news, uh, George Floyd, mm-hmm. and I saw the video yeah. and I was terribly moved. Uh, so I posted something uh, on my Instagram. Black lives matter. All lives matter. No to racial discrimination of any form. Today, we are all horrified and angered by what happened to George Floyd. I am. Rest in peace, George Floyd. But there is a George Floyd who dies every day in different parts of the world, but unfortunately media doesn't capture it. Let us all always be vigilant, speak up and stand up against all forms of discrimination and all sorts and forms of brutality and violence against all humans of all color, all religions, all ethnicities and all sexual orientations. What connects us, what connects us all is not our skin color, nationality, religion, or ethnicity. What connects us all is our shared humanity. Let us all stand by and for our shared humanity. That's so beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I look yeah. forward to having more discussions with you. Yeah, we can talk about creativity and love. Yeah. Art and yeah, literature. Art, yeah. <laughs> See you next episode. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Mm-hmm.